0: Good morning and happy Sabbath! I so appreciate the opportunity to be here in front of all of you in a safe and responsible way. This coming Monday, October 12th, we celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. I want to open our worship by acknowledging that we are on stolen land. Our church here in Boulder sits on the land of the Arapaho, Ute, and Cheyenne nations. The Boulder Seventh-day Adventist Church is built on these foothills, where the, hu- the Utes in the winter would descend from the higher altitude of the Rocky Mountains to track the buffalo along the plains. Oftentimes, this would also create opportunities for the Ute to trade with other tribes that bordered these, na- these lands. Many of the ute trails that were created from generations of the movement back and forth later became roads and highways like I-70, where many of us now take to drive up to ski and hike. As we gather here today, we have the privilege of worshiping freely and being a community together. As a nation, however, We still have the much to do in restoring justice for the cultural and generational genocides we committed against the people that were here first. Today we call ourselves a nation of immigrants. We also must hold ourselves accountable to a nation of native people whose land we stole. We are also a nation that enslaved people and we are still fighting against systemic racism and violence. We are a nation with people that didn't cross the southern border, but the border crossed them in the 1840s. I invite us all together today to use this weekend as a time to reflect on where our personal story aligns with the United States. I want to acknowledge that whatever feelings you're having right now are real. Sit with them. Feel them. Let us be a church of justice and peace as we embrace different people's experiences and today discuss immigration. I have to say that writing this sermon was challenging for me. There are so many stories that I wanted to incorporate, but I decided to narrow my piece of the discussion. This Sabbath, I am focusing on the book of Exodus and just the first chapter because, to be honest, this is a narrative that I find so many contradictions and tensions in. My mom recently reminded me of an experience from when I was in third grade. My Sabbath school teacher called my mom after church, inquiring about my emotional state. My teacher was making sure I was okay because in her class, as she was sharing the story of Passover and teaching us that if the angel passed over a door without the blood of a lamb, the family would lose their firstborn boy. And I thought, oh no, God would not do that. And my Sabbath school teacher just tried to explain how we are learning about obedience, but I burst into tears because I believe that the God I love would always give people second chances and fight for justice. When we talk about justice and love, especially as Adventists, we gravitate towards Jesus and the New Testament. I think I speak for many of us, when I say that Jesus clarifies a lot of the questions that we have about God in the Old Testament. Jesus offers us a a consistency in love and nonviolence. He advocates for the most vulnerable and excluded people, and he finds the best in humanity. But in Exodus, we experience this powerful and vengeful God, a God that hears the cries of his people the Israelites and comes to their aid, but at the expense of the Egyptians and Pharaoh. There's a beautiful story of redemption and resilience in the story of the Hebrews trapped in Egypt, but it's bound up in this ugly exercise of power, both by Pharaoh and God too. These themes are where I find parallels with our story of immigration today. I want to play a video for you of me reading the story of a woman in sanctuary a few miles from here in the Boulder Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Ingrid is a mother, a wife, and a community activist, and I had the honor of sharing her words in a Modus Theatre production. This experience challenged me, as a U.S. citizen, to step into the shoes of an undocumented woman fighting to keep her family united in this country. I spent thousands of dollars on lawyers to represent me, but they really didn't put much attention into my case. And that's really what messed up my situation to the point that I have to be in sanctuary today. I could have gotten a lesser sentence for using a false social security number. I could have pled not guilty because I didn't know it was someone else's number but when they took me to jail, Bryant was just two years old, and without me, he was not eating. My aunt brought Brian to see me in the jail, trying to help him, and they would not let me hold him. He could just look at me from behind the glass, and he kept screaming and crying for me. He didn't understand that I couldn't remove the glass and told him, My aunt said that it took him two days to calm down. He just kept crying and crying. And they did not have the compassion to let me touch my baby. The lawyer told me that if I pled guilty, I would get out with probation, pay the IRS and I would be with my son again. He assured me it would not cause problems with immigration. But if I tried to fight my case, I might end up back in jail. So I pled guilty and returned to my family. But the lawyer did not understand immigration law and pleading guilty has ruined my life. I found out that the woman whose social security number I used got in a lot of trouble because I used her number. She was on benefits and the government took them away and accused her of working at the nursing home. It was very hard on her family. They needed their benefits. She suffered a lot and I feel terrible about that. I have tried to reach out and apologize and see if there's something I can do to solve or help pay for her a refund. But she will not talk to me. I was not trying to hurt her. I didn't know by working at that nursing home, I was hurting anyone. I would like her to forgive me. I don't want to be taken away from my two children. Until last night, I truly believe I had made peace with the difficult decision to be deported to Peru, taking my two sons with me and splitting our family. I was too tired to keep fighting and face the long-term prospects of sanctuary. I was hopeful I'd find a way to start my life over again. But then the reality started to hit Brian, my older son in fourth grade, was crying and begging me not to go and force him to leave our home and his school. You see, it's not just me, like it was when I came to the U.S. as a teenager, now it's my two kids, who are both U.S. citizens, and thinking about taking them back there, away from their country. I didn't finish my degree. I don't have a profession or a way to start from zero, and there's not really anything more than sustenance I could provide them. My aunt, who recently returned from Peru, shared with me the devastating poverty the country is facing in the aftermath (laughs) of Venezuela's economic crisis. And, well, it may seem like a small thing to you, but Anibal, my two-year-old son, has a bad cold and there's no health clinic where my family lives in Peru. No place to take him if he needs a doctor. No, I decided I have to be strong and do what's best for my children. I must choose sanctuary so I can fight for my family and for my community. Something we don't talk enough about is that undocumented immigrants that don't have the privilege to vote and are mostly barred from accessing public services like social security benefits, still pay a lot of taxes. The graphic that I'm showing you right now says that just in one year, undocumented immigrants are paying $11.7 billion into our tax pool. They pay income, property, and sales taxes, but hardly benefit from public services like citizens can. One of the resources I'm going to use in this sermon is a part of a gift that I received from this very church family, so thank you. Um, I'm going to just read an essay, um, or part of an essay, and the title is called Making Peace with the Stranger. According to a recent report... Polls show that more than 70% of Americans, including a majority of evangelicals, support immigration reform. Elements of this reform include strengthening the enforcement of immigration laws at the border and throughout the country, fixing the legal immigration system so that employers can legally hire workers that they need, keeping families together, and allowing undocumented immigrants to earn legal status and eventually citizenship by paying fines and penalties, learning English, and going to the back of the legal immigration line. The NAE has joined forces with other evangelical organizations to work together to amplify their voice in Washington and to mobilize evangelicals nationwide to study scriptures, pray for reform, and advocate with the members of Congress. So let's tie this into scripture. In the first chapter of Exodus, we read the rise of power by a new pharaoh in Egypt. Follow along with me, starting in verse 8. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, We'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. When I read this verse, I see implications that this pharaoh does not value Joseph or his descendants. He is establishing his own power and self-interest. Joseph means nothing. How is pharaoh dehumanizing the Hebrews here? Verse 9 initiates a division between the Egyptians and Israelites. It is Pharaoh's people against God's people. And Pharaoh offers a warning If we let them prosper, we shall perish. Verse 11 continues So the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor, and they built two store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So Pharaoh is forcing this very physically and psychologically intense trauma onto the Israelites by enslaving them. Verse 11 says that the Israelites built two store cities for, for Pharaoh. Store can also translate to treasured, or strong, and fortified. So it's made evident that the Israelites acquired massive amounts of wealth for Pharaoh. Interestingly, something I want to point out here too is that the Egyptians believed that each Pharaoh was the earthly manifestation of their Most High God, a sun god. Even today, the sun is the source of a life for all of us. The sun sustains our food, our light, and our warmth. So for the Egyptians, Pharaoh is their provider. Here, however, Pharaoh uses the Israelites to provide for his own people, the Egyptians, and uses them to reinforce their own cultural and religious values. This labor is intended to be very dehumanizing to the Israelites, as they are excluded from the prosperity. Now let's connect this um, experience to the neoliberal policies in the United States going to read to you an excerpt from an essay um, and it's titled The Neoliberal Construction of Immigration. Put simply, neoliberalism is the process of implementing less government spending on social programs coupled with significant privatization of state functions. Neoliberal policies become a tool for wealthy countries to use to extract primary resources from developing countries. And if history tells us anything, people are resources ripe for extraction. Versani presents a definition of the aims of neoliberalism as that which attempts to, quote, purge the system of obstacles to the functioning of free markets, restrain public expenditure and any form of collective initiative, celebrate the virtues of individualism, competitiveness, and economic self-sufficiency, abolish or weaken social transfer programs while actively fostering the inclusion of the poor and marginalized into the labor market on the market's terms." Unquote. This quote can be mapped, at, mapped besides immigra- beside immigration issues in summing up what led to the perceived crisis of immigration in the United States. Obstacles to the functioning of free markets are things like laws that prohibit slavery, demand minimum wages, and provide for health care and safe working uh, conditions. These obstacles are basically non-existent when using a pool of undocumented workers whom business owners can exploit, and that the safety net is exempt from covering, effectively restraining some public expenditures. So this means that the United States is enacting policies that favor corporations over human lives. Unauthorized immigration is profitable because companies can hire undocumented workers under the table without following laws that protect workers' rights, such as paying workers minimum wage or compensation for overtime. Then agencies like ICE continue to brutally police immigrant communities and funnel undocumented residents into private, for-profit detention facilities that get paid, by we the taxpayers, an average of $127 per person detained. And that's per night. We often hear that the immigration system is broken. But in fact, it's working perfectly. But for who? Not for you and me. We continue to reduce the number of people we permit to enter this country legally, especially refugees and asylum seekers because of the stigma around people fleeing violence and economic hardship. And the treatment we inflict on the people that were able to enter this country in search of a better life Where I find hope, however, is in the book of Exodus. The manipulation and cruelty that Pharaoh again and again tries to force upon the Hebrews does not stifle their ability to thrive. Amazingly, Pharaoh's actions have the opposite effect on the Israelites because despite hardship, they continue to multiply. This language of growth is commonly pointed out in Exodus as a continuation of Genesis. Our ability to grow families and build communities is a part of God's gift of creation. This growth we see in verse 12. The more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. is very closely linked to redemption, because the Israelites are able to remain resilient despite this unfathomable hardship. So out of all of this, we see Pharaoh's fear grow. He fears the power of the Israelites, and he makes multiple efforts, as we read on, to suppress and control God's people. As we continue through verse 15 through 21. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, When are you helping the Hebrew women? When you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth under the on the delivery stool. If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. We see the midwives again, connected to birth and growth, disobey Pharaoh by refusing to take part in this violence. They protect the Hebrew babies with their own position. Here we see one of the greatest examples of allyship in this story. But Pharaoh found another way around to carry out his demands. Continue with me in verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. How do we still excuse and glorify a culture of destruction and violence? When people in power are making decisions to strip away the freedoms of people, who are we to stand by and let that happen? To what extent do we allow such horrors in our communities, our nations, our collective world to persist. Chapter two in Exodus begins with the birth of Moses, the hope and deliverer of the Israelites. I don't feel the need to continue because I feel we all know the story very well. I wanna linger here in this moment of pain because although Moses is born and pardoned by the grace of the women around him and by God, his people, our people, continue to suffer for years. Change does not happen overnight, but in this story, it took a persistent, and patient God to convince Moses that he was enough to enact change. I don't think we need the miracles of parting the Red Sea or a burning bush to convince us of what is just in this world. Where Pharaoh saw war, I see collaboration. This fear that Pharaoh perpetuated as an excuse to enslave the Hebrews is powerful. That fear of the other. I believe the Israelites are deserving of freedom. I believe the Egyptians are deserving of freedom. I believe Ingrid is deserving of freedom. Thank you.